There are some stories in Jewish history that are so bizarre, so fascinating, so completely wild that they feel straight out of a movie. Join hosts Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab for Season 3 of Jewish History Nerds, a new season of intrigue, mystical realms, and bloody battles. Jewish History Nerds will keep you on the edge of your seat as you learn all about some of the craziest and most amazing, yet largely unknown stories that fill Jewish history books. Jewish History Nerds Season 3, hosted by Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab. Available wherever you listen. Listen to podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, a history podcast that does what it says in the title. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. And with me today is Ian Johnson. Hi, Ian. Hey, Margaret. How are you? I'm doing all right. Our producer, Sophie. Oh, I guess I should say who you are. Ian is an audio engineer. You do other stuff, too. How come this? He's also one half of the DJ. DJ. He's DJ Duo Gladiator with our boy DJ Daniel. Also on the Cool Zone Media team, we have the full Gladiator, which is something (laughs) I like to say as often as legally allowed. You do say it a lot. I say it as many times as I can. Um, Yeah. But yeah, you know, my main my main gig is chopping up these podcasts. Um, Recently got into tennis. That's been fun. How do I do yeah, and uh, yeah, I do love to DJ. That's it's a lot of fun. So yeah, are you, you going to make a DJ controller that's like a tennis racket and then has like MIDI based on where the height and? No, that's that's a little beyond. That's a little bit beyond my my scope. You know the uh, the engineering side of it. That's I'll leave that to someone else. Fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Our producer Sophie. Hi Sophie. How you doing? My dog has to have surgery. I am sad, but I am okay. Yeah. I am, I am holding Puppy. on by yeah. by by a small amount. But every time bad stuff happens to my friends' dogs, I just like go out and hug Rintraw. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, that's yeah. appropriate response. My my yeah. least my least favorite thing about uh uh social media is when you randomly see sad animal shit without your consent. Like why would people do that? TikTok is pretty bad about it. Like it's, it, it's yeah. like you're like scrolling. You're like, oh, ha, ha, disassociation, and you see like cute animal mm-hmm. things, and then all of a sudden, they, it's like, no, I don't want to see some sad dog shit. No, nobody yeah. wants to see that. Nobody no. wants to see that. Anyways, sorry. This is cool. People, <laughs> right. cool stuff. Our theme song is by Un Woman. Ian edits it. Yeah. I produce it. Margaret writes, research, and hosts it. And this week we're talking about Muhammad Ali. Did I do yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you, you did it. it. Hell yeah. This week we're talking about Muhammad Ali, one of the greatest athletes I just the world's said ever seen. that. 
I know, but it's in the <gasps> script. And like, how am I going to start at the second half of the sentence? Fair enough. That's a good point. My my main move is to say things off script and then still have to read them later in the script. That's like that's what that is. That is <laughs> that's classic Magpie. Yeah. Wait, Mag- yeah. wait. Because I'm like, I don't know how to. I'm, I can't on the fly edit it. <laughs> like, Magpie, is there any TB in this episode? There is no tuberculosis in this entire episode. Wow, is we this did the it. first one? We fucking did it. It might be. Might it be might the first be. One Although no uh, you know what, I'll take consumption over Dianetics. Yes, every time. Thoroughly, yeah. thoroughly. Because there's but, no antibiotics for that shit. Yeah, <laughs> but Muhammad Ali gets out way before Dianetics kick in. So this this uh, this episode will be entirely free of that. So, first episode, we talked mostly about the Nation of Islam, the religion and movement he spent most of his boxing career in. Today, we're going to talk about the man himself. Muhammad Ali was born Cassius Clay. Um, I thought about not using that name, and then I realized he uses it himself in his books to talk about when he was younger. But it was a whole thing where people would, like, basically dead name him constantly um, just right. to be a fucking dick to him. And his name is Muhammad Ali. He was born on January 17, 1942, in Louisville, Kentucky. His father was a painter. Um, he usually gets called a sign painter, and that's his job, but he, um, he was a painter. He painted a ton of, a ton of murals, a ton of paintings. Um, his mother was a domestic. Unlike Jack before him, he was deeply and personally affected by segregation as a kid. Um, like, literally once, he's, like, waiting at a bus stop and he like needs water and he's like this is like when he's like so young he can't even remember this and his mom like takes him in to get a cup of water and they're like no we're not giving your kid a cup of water you know mm. okay yeah um i don't know if you knew this but segregation's bad um he was dyslexic he struggled in school his family was baptist and went to church every sunday and his father painted a lot of the murals in the church and every other Baptist church in the city. Although actually, I read that, but also the fact that his father was Methodist and they went to his mother's Baptist church. But, you know, whatever. He speaks well of his parents and his childhood. Uh, and his, specifically, one of the things he talks about is his father wasn't afraid to show affection to his children. Oh, that's nice. And, yeah. And then he had this favorite game that he liked playing as a kid. His favorite game was try not to get hit by rocks. Uh, oh, okay, okay. Specifically, his favorite game was have his younger brother throw rocks at him and see if he could dodge them. Oh, is this how he developed the the footwork and the oh? Yeah. And the, okay, I see. Okay, yeah, it's coming together. Okay. Yeah. So if you want to toughen up your kid, just get him to get him into dodge rock. You know, <laughs> dodge rock. That's great. <laughs> um. So one day, as the story goes, and I don't have a counter argument to the story. It's actually the story. This is the story. He says it himself. Young Muhammad, he's 12 years old. He had his bike stolen. It's his prized possession. It was not a cheap bike. It was a red and white Schwinn. And he wanted to go find a cop to report it stolen. And he heard that this white cop named Joe Martin might be able to help him who ran a boxing gym. So he shows up at Joe's boxing gym and is like, you should help me find that kid so I can beat him up. And there's like two versions of this. And one is the cop is like, hey, why not learn to box before you go beat him up so you're better at beating him up? 
And there's another version that's like the cop and everyone else is like, oh God, if the kid who stole your bike is a white kid, you're going to end up dead. Like, let's just try and get you to not go hunt down your bike. Right. So cameo by a cop who did something good. Rare. I know, especially Louisville, Kentucky, 1954 white cop. Unexpected. Yeah. So he starts boxing. And he's really fucking good at it. And he's really good at it partly because he just like sets his mind to it. There's like natural talent, but he talks a lot about how it's like, no, it's that he trains six days a week. Um, and, you know, he grew up playing dodge rock and, and boxing kept him out of trouble and away from drinking and smoking. He got his first fight really quick after that in 1954. He's still 12. He has 90 pounds. His opponent is bigger and taller and white. And little Ali is like afraid. And his dad's like, nah, go, go whoop that white kid's ass. It's great. Like you're in the ring, you know, little Ali won. He went on to win a lot. And one of the stories that I really like is that he tracked down the neighborhood bully. There's this kid named Corky Baker. And the first time Ali saw, yeah, Corky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a 1950 ass name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And to make it as 1950s as possible, the first time Ali saw Corky, uh, Muhammad Ali at least describes it this way. Corky was holding a football player upside down and shaking him for loose change. (laughs) Classic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone was always afraid of Corky Baker. But Muhammad Ali, I would say not Muhammad Ali, but no, he was afraid. But Muhammad Ali believed in doing what he was afraid of. So um, Ali challenged him to a fight, but he was like, I'm not going to fight you here in the streets. I'm going to fight you in the ring. And Corky was basically like, boxing's for sissies, but everyone on the street starts calling him. A, this is straight up. Just I'm, I'm, I'm just describing a 1950s movie. Yeah. But everyone around him starts calling him a coward. And so he gives in and he fights Ali in the ring. And it was a title match. The title was King of the Street. Whoever wins is King of the Street. It's two rounds. Corky never lands a single punch. After two rounds of the black eye, Corky says literally, this ain't fair and runs off. Like just like Not Corky saying this ain't fair. Okay. Yeah. Corky. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Shit. I could take Corky. <laughs> you could probably take Corky. After this, Ali and his friends and all the like neighborhood kids run down the street chanting, We're free, we're free, long live the king, we're free. That's awesome. Yeah. And Corky gets a redemption arc. So after this, Corky stops fucking with people. He like stops being a bully. And this is a huge life lesson for young Ali. If you stand up to bullies, you stand up, you stand up to them and you stand up to them for yourself and everyone else. He winds up befriending Corky. They, they don't become tight, but they stay in touch until years later when Corky dies in a shootout with the cops. Oh, God. Oh. I know. It was so great, and then it got so bad. I know, I know. When he was 18, not Corky, but when Muhammad Ali was 18, he goes to the fucking Olympics in Rome. And he's afraid to fly. He'd only flown twice before. This is like his big fear, besides Corky. Um, He's conquered that fear. He's afraid to fly. He's only flown twice before. He flew to California and back for the Olympic trials. He was so afraid that he wasn't going to go, but his father's advice, quote, always confront the things that you fear 
got to him, and with a good fatherly pep talk, he goes out and buys a parachute and brings the parachute on the plane because he is a prepper king. That is all I'm saying. So he goes to Rome and he wins the gold medal uh, for, yeah, I, I didn't write it into the script. It's it's the like lighter than heavyweight. It's the like light heavyweight or something. Was it like, li- yeah, like light heavyweight or there's like welterweight or. It wasn't welterweight because I remember okay. that because it was a funny name. Okay. Um, so light heavyweight is probably what yeah. it was. That makes sense. Yeah. I think welterweight was when I was, the like brief time I was learning boxing. I think I was welterweight, but I can't remember. He got he he got, got a gold it. medal at eighteen for light heavyweight division at the nineteen sixties summer Olympics. Back All right, check here we go. By the producer. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So he comes back and he thinks he's like, oh, I'm good. Racism will not be able to stand up to this fucking gold medal because he comes back and there's like. When he shows up in Louisville, there's crowds of black people and white people cheering for him. The mayor takes him as like, this is the key to the city. The, the gold medal is mayor doesn't give him a different key. He's a hometown hero. Yeah. Yeah. Except there's a problem. The problem that it was is in America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even while he's in Rome, a Soviet interviewer comes up. It gets in a really sick burn. The Soviet is like, so, how does it feel to have like won a medal for a country that won't let you eat it in restaurants? Mm, yeah. And, uh, and so he goes and he's home and he wears the gold medal everywhere. He's like fucking, it, he showers with it. It's like causing back problems because he's like sleeping with it on and it like, you know? Yeah. I would do the same thing, especially oh, when I was absolutely. 18 and I would just want a gold medal. Yeah. I would never take <laughs> yeah. it off. Yeah. One day, he and a friend try to eat at a diner. And the waitress says, we don't serve Negroes. And he responded, well, we don't eat them either. Oh, that's good. I know. Which is how you know he's going to grow up to be a dad because he's got them dad jokes. Locked Only in 18. already. Yeah. yeah. And there's a couple of different versions of the... He writes... A lot of what I'm saying is like from his own autobiography, but other people, including his friends, have said that he lies in his autobiography in order to like say... His friends have said things like, damn, those honkies will believe anything you tell them. And they said that specifically around, he says that he got so mad that he threw his gold medal into the river. Okay, yeah, that's like the common story that I've heard. Yeah. And, you know, and that story comes from him. But one of his friends later was like, no, like, that's not true. Either way... Up to that point, he wore the medal every moment of his life. Afterwards, he realized it's just a material object. He starts taking it off. After winning the gold medal, he starts his professional career. And I don't know if you knew this. Um, he's really good at boxing. I had heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Like some sort of superlative, I think. So he, he, he wins a lot. And he usually wins by knockout. Of his first 19 fights which he won all of. He won 15 of them by knockout. Wow. Yeah. And one of his whole things is that he's like, you can't fucking hit him. And so he's got that famous line, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. He, he dodges more than he blocks, and then he hits really fucking hard. It's all that dodge rock. Yeah. It's, it's really like poetic and artful the way that, that he performs. It, yeah, I... 
I like watching boxing, honestly. Like, I like watching for all the, like... I I have this, like, whole thing where it's, like, the only reason I don't know sports is that I don't know pop culture. It's, like, not actually... Like, sports are actually really fucking cool. Yeah. Mm. Pop culture could be really fucking cool, too. I'm not trying to... It's just... I like watching... Yeah. I also... I like... I like in, like, the fighting sports, the walk-ins, when they walk into the to the arena. That shit's hard. That shit's hard. If that doesn't get you hyped, like, what will? So cool. Yeah. Well, do you want to know where he got his showman walk-ins and attitude from? Because it's the next paragraph in the script. Is it? No. Is it actually? Is it actually? Because yeah. I was just, I was yeah. just talking. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yep. <laughs> Fuck yeah! Really on my game today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he's an incredible boxer. He's also an incredible showman, and he learned this. And he talks about this a lot. He met this guy named Gorgeous George. Y'all ever seen Gorgeous George? No. Um, Gorgeous George is like, he's the first professional wrestler who does the um, the villain heel who like, you just want to hit because he's so schmarmy. Yes, yes. Gorgeous George is a flamboyant wrestler who was as effeminate as possible. He kept his hair bleached blonde and long and pinned up in gold-plated bobby pins, which he distributed to his fans and called Georgie Pins. He marched to the ring to that graduation song, Pomp and Circumstance, like... No, I can't do it. It's out of my head as soon as I tried. (laughs) Sophie, can can you sing Pomp and Circumstance? No. I just started thinking of like vitamin C graduation. And now that's the only thing playing in my head. (laughs) I can sing that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what it is. That's okay. Um, We'll we'll play it for you after. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Margaret always tricks me into singing. Nobody else can do that. I know. know. (laughs) So he marches in to the graduation song with people throwing rose petals. He gets up on the, into the ring and he disinfects it with Ch- uh, Chanel number no. five, uh, which Incredible. is completely unproblematic. And there's no other podcast that explores the problematic history of Chanel. Um, there's a behind the bastards talking about this anyway. Um, and he talks crazy shit on his opponents and he brings in the crowds because people want to see him get beat up. Like, yes, because he, and so half of them come to jeer him, but they come and they buy tickets. And so this is how he learns that, like, this is how Muhammad Ali learns, like, if people hate you, you still make money off yes. the people who hate you. The heat is good. The heat yeah. is good. That's basically the, the strategy of, like, every UFC situation. Yeah. And so that's where this comes from, is Gorgeous George, the all but a drag queen. Like, mm-hmm. the the tightest line between gorgeous george and a drag queen and muhammad ali fucking love gorgeous george and so and he's like look half of and muhammad ali used it as like okay i'm drawing in crowds and half of the angry white people want to see me lose but that's fine all the racists can just give me their money that's not a problem for me Right. It reminds me of like uh, when people in like the 90s were like burning all those NWA CDs. Like NWA was like, hey, they paid for them. Like, I don't care what they do with them after. (laughs) I know. And then it's just more publicity is like. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so during this showman stage, he's already started to do some poetry when he gets off of the plane with the gold medal. 
is the first time he publicly recites a poem. But part of his showman thing is his poetry. He's basically rapping, and a lot of sources will call him the first rapper, although the first of any of that kind of sort of thing is impossible to really know, right? Sure. He writes diss poetry, and he recites it constantly, and he constantly belittles his opponents, and he talks himself up. And, and this is like part of why he matters, because he didn't fucking make himself small for white people. He also, and I love this about him, constantly talked about how pretty he was. He'd say, I'm as pretty as a girl. He'd say, I'm handsome, I'm fast, I'm pretty, and I can't possibly be beat. And part of that talking is um, the reason he's so pretty. When he's saying, I'm so pretty, he's saying, because no one can punch me in my face. I'm too fast. Yeah. He also started making predictions about his fights, and he would encode them into poetry. Like, when you come to the fight, don't block the aisles and don't block the door you all may go home after round four. When he would make these predictions, he got 17 out of 21 of them right about that's, what that's round he would win. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, people started betting based on his predictions that he would win in whatever round he said he would win. Um, Did you he talked about how the... demoralizing that is? So if yeah. somebody's like, I'm going to knock you out in the third round and then they actually do it. And then you're just like, well, shit. <laughs> I know. You know it's coming and it still happens. I know. I would hate to fight it. I mean, I wouldn't actually because like one of the things that he talks about is that he he considered his boxing like very scientific. He was not the largest. He didn't have the the furthest reach. He was not the strongest. He didn't have the best knockout punch. He had a very good knockout punch. But he considered himself like a a scientific boxer. He would like study it, you know? Yeah. He was more like strategic in the tactical side of it, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that was part of his strategy was don't try to hurt your opponent. He talked about how like, if you're winning, don't just like damage someone just because you can. And that's interesting. I never really considered like, you know, anytime I'm like sparring or something, I've never like, I've never uh, fought even an amateur round. I've just practiced, you know? And, like, when you're sparring, it's just like, well, I want to win, right? You know, right. it's like, oh, fuck, I'm in a fight. I better win this fight. But when you're so fucking good, you can just, like, actually control what's happening. I just, I'm really impressed by all this shit. He also got into stage magic, and he joined a stage magician's union. So he's not just a hero, but a union man. <laughs> That's awesome. He also consciously talked about how he grew up without black role models on TV in the public eye. So he set about to become one. And around the same time, as he starts his professional career, he gets into the Nation of Islam. But before we talk about that, we should talk about mm, turtles. Turtles are great. We should go back to being sponsored by turtles. Nice. I love turtles. Yeah. Here's some ads for turtles. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. 
The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for 40% off site-wide at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. And we're back. And so... At the beginning of his career, he's excited about the Nation of Islam, but he, um, he doesn't have the means to join it yet. And actually, one thing I read is that they weren't sure about accepting a boxer, but I wasn't able to find out more information about specifically that. Um, I'm sure that information exists, but there's... Someone referred to it as, like, the professional athlete with the most words written about them in history. <laughs> you know? Like, people have talked a lot about Muhammad Ali because he's fucking cool and worth talking about. In 1959, he learns about the Nation of Islam, and he gets really excited by them. Um, by 1962, he becomes friends with Malcolm X. And by 1964, he was ready to fight for the heavyweight championship of the world, which was held by another black man named Sonny Liston. Um, boxing has apparently gotten over its obsession with J names at this point. <laughs> Sonny is a huge man with a huge personality. He's also a mafia enforcer. Um, ah. Yeah. But... One time, a cop called him some racial slurs, so he beat the shit out of the cop, broke the cop's knee, and took the cop's gun. So, I kind of like Sonny. Hero. Yeah. Muhammad fought him. The odds were heavily against him. Seven to one, like the the booking odds. Muhammad is this young upstart. Sonny Liston is the fucking giant champion of everything, you know? 
Muhammad Ali by round three, he's winning. Liston, uh, I think it's the first time he gets cut in his professional career. He needs stitches for a cut under his eye. After round four, Muhammad had something in his eye that was burning him when he's in the, sitting in the corner afterwards, and he can't see. And a lot of people think the mafia guy was cheating with oil of wintergreen on his gloves to b- blind Muhammad. Mm. It's possible, though. That's, that seems possible. It's also entirely possible that Liston's uh, cut man, I did not know that in, there's a job called cut man in boxing. Yeah. Um, it's the guy which is the doctor, the ringside the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. It's possible Liston's cut man wiped his, had put something probably on that cut, right? And then that had gotten onto the guy's gloves and then gotten onto, you know, gotten to Liston's gloves and then gotten in Muhammad's eyes. That is possible. And someone on Liston's side, like, literally wiped his own eyes with the sponge to prove there wasn't some foul play, like the sponge that he used to, like, wipe off the guy's gloves. So I don't know. Either way, in round five, Muhammad Ali fights almost completely blind. By round six, it was cleared up, and Liston calls it quits rather than fight around seven. So Muhammad Ali becomes the heavyweight champion of the world. And Liston wants a rematch, or one of them wants a rematch, I assume it's Liston. And this one I couldn't figure out, and I'm kind of curious, like, this one is like everyone talks about it, but no one really conjectures too hard. They have a rematch and Liston goes down in the first round from a six-inch punch that everyone calls the phantom punch and basically says, like, couldn't possibly have knocked him down. So it's completely possible that Liston took a dive. Other people say no, it was legit. They think he threw the fight, potentially. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And then if he threw the fight, my first thought was like, oh, he's a mafia guy. He got paid to, whatever. Right, you know? that's literally immediately what I thought. Yeah. yeah. Later, Liston implied that he was afraid of the nation of Islam. Oh, and what they interesting. would, what they would do if he like won. I, I don't know. Muhammad Ali, if so, was not excited or in on it. Like he literally was like yelling, get up and fight sucker. And no one will believe that. Like no one will believe I actually beat you, you know, but now that Muhammad Ali is the heavyweight champion of the world, they sign him up more officially. Elijah Muhammad gives him the name Muhammad Ali. And he moves to Chicago to be near the center of the Nation of Islam. And most journalists refuse to call him Muhammad Ali. They call him Cassius. And he just gets madder and madder about it, which is completely fucking understandable. And he said, quote, Why should I keep my white slave master's name visible and my black ancestors invisible, unknown, unhonored? Shortly after Ali joins the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X leaves it. Like I said earlier, Malcolm tried to get him to quit too, but Ali didn't quit. Ali stays in the movement. He becomes an outspoken proponent of it, including the really positive stuff, like developing black self-determination and pride, and including the things that are less popular now, like advocating against interracial marriage. Meanwhile, he married his first wife, Sanji Roy. And it didn't last because she wouldn't conform to the conservative values of the Nation of Islam. He hated that she wore makeup and dressed provocatively and went out to bars and, and partied and all that shit. Which is to say, Muhammad Ali is not going to get featured on our spinoff show, Great Men in History Who Were Actually Good to the Women in Their Lives, at least not young Muhammad. The way that he interacts with his family is, well, it's, it's part of his, re- his arc, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to say redemption arc because that's the main thing is whatever. He's fucking complicated and I think he's fucking cool and we'll keep talking about it. 
His, his children overall seem to have a positive impression of him. And he changed his perceptions on lots of stuff as his life continued. But he was married four times. He had at least nine children, uh, including several with people who he wasn't married to while he was married to other people. He had a bunch of affairs and mistresses, including a 16-year-old when he was 32. Another time, he left his wife for a young, hot model. He says that one of his only regrets about his career is the time he took it took him away from his children, that he wasn't as good of a father as he wanted to be. Um, so, you know, that's part of him. Complicated. Yeah. Yeah. This other thing is happening in the 1960s. The U.S., I don't know if you've heard about this, it, it, it did an imperialism in Vietnam. Uh, oh, from, yeah. Yeah. For more on that, see about 80% of the episodes of this show I've done this year because <laughs> I'm sticking to the 60s, 70s for a little while because there's so much here. And Muhammad Ali, he was not the highest bracket on the draft. The highest bracket is 1A. He was 1Y because he'd failed some literacy tests because of his dyslexia. Until 1966 when they were like, oh, whatever, fuck it, who cares? And they lowered their standards. And he was suddenly 1A again. And there's a lot of sketchiness around this. A lot of people are like, this is a way to shut him up or get him killed. The U.S. sure like putting black soldiers in harm's way. I think it's more likely, because they told him they, they were going to try and do this, that he wouldn't have to pick up a gun. They just wanted to use him for like propaganda and have him like sh- fight exhibition matches and shit and like get other young black men killed instead, you know? Um, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, that was actually because the first time I'd heard about it, he resisted the draft. I was like, why would you fucking make Muhammad Ali a private and put him in the front? You know? And yeah, they thought of that too. Uh, despite being bad, the US government has a modicum of intelligence. But Ali wasn't going to fucking go. There was no way. To quote him, and I think I used this quote before or a similar quote. Quote, man, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. Why should they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights? He's also got another good quote that I can't repeat about what words the Viet Cong have never called him. He registers as a conscientious objector. This part I didn't know until... Even the Nation of Islam tried to persuade him to accept induction. His parents and in the Nation of Islam are like, just go. You don't have to fight anyone. You'll just fight some exhibition matches. It'll just be easier. But he's like, no, I'm not going to fucking do it. So when he gets called up anyway, he goes to the induction center and he refuses to step up when they call his name. They warn him being like, hey, if you don't step up, it's a felony. And he refuses a total of three times. The government fucking flips out on him. Every state in the country pulls his boxing license the uh, New York State Athletic Commission stripped him of the heavyweight championship, even though he had never lost. And he um, and they take his passport away because he's like pending trial. So he can't fight anywhere. That's his livelihood and purpose in life. And he can't do right. it. His celebrity and his polarizing of society just spike at this point. He already has polarized the shit out of everyone when he like came out with next with Malcolm X and was like, yo, I'm Muslim now in 1964. Everyone was like, oh, fuck, you know? But yeah, he polarizes the shit out of society. Here is a proud black man willing to put it all on the line for his beliefs to refuse to do something evil. The 
the agents of white supremacy that are on the other side of the polarization, not only was he constantly being threatened, but newspapers who wrote in support of him had bomb threats at their offices. One journalist had his windshield smashed out for writing things like, Muhammad Ali isn't doing something bad, you know? And he was found guilty of draft resistance. His argument was, no, I'm a conscientious objector. I didn't resist. I showed up and told them I'm not going to do it. And he takes it all the way to the Supreme Court. So he wasn't in prison while they deliberated, but he wasn't allowed to do his job. So instead, he travels around speaking at colleges, talking about black power and draft resistance and why the U.S. should get the hell out of Vietnam. And one random right-wing pundit, I listened to the Muhammad Ali story from a right-wing point of view, and it talks about him having done this for the lucrative college speaking money. You ever spoken at a college? It's not a very good way to make money. (laughs) (laughs) You don't say. No. Okay, there's an exception to this. When I lived out of a van... And $400 was a lot of money, like a lot, a lot of money. He was really lucrative to speak at colleges. Okay. He, w- he was raking in money as a, as a fighter, right? As a, as a boxer. Yeah. Talking at colleges, I'm sure they paid him more than $400 to come speak. This is not in the same fucking league as professional boxing. And him doing this, it is hard to overstate how influential this is on American politics. Black political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal said about him, quote, As someone who grew up very young in the party, the Black Panther Party, I didn't form a lot of the idolatries that many age mates did. At 14 to 15, I wasn't fantasizing about being a member of the NBA or NFL. I was a member of the Black Panthers, and that was enough for me. But if ever there was a sports hero to us, it was Muhammad Ali. He influenced the Black Panthers more directly than that, too. The first use of the Black Panther symbol had a slogan with it, We are the greatest. And this is the collectivization of of Ali's personal motto, I am the greatest. Huey Newton, one of the co-founders of the Panthers, was clear that it was watching speeches by Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali that had inspired his political growth. And the difference for the Panthers is that, at least for Huey Newton when he's talking about this, is that he had had enough of religion, right? But the, the other stuff he quite liked that Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali were saying. He was a hero to black troops because the black troops knew they were being fucking used. His words and his deeds helped inspire the black troops who refused service and those who turned their guns around on their actual oppressors, the white officers who were forcing them to go kill and die in an unjust war. Yeah, I mean, it's just like he had a massive platform and he was willing to burn it to the ground to do what was right. And by doing so, he helped fucking stop a war. So... He's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. He's fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the fact that they took away his livelihood and stripped him of the titles and everything, but he still felt the obligation and found a way to use the platform that he had to still, you know, empower people and inspire people. Even if he couldn't do it in a ring, he was going to find another way to do it. And that that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And he... He also was standing up to the nation of Islam. They kicked him out during this. Mm, yeah. As Muhammad put it, quote, the nation of Islam didn't make me a Muslim. My belief in God made me a Muslim. And slowly, after three years, he's allowed to box again. And the first place, I, was, I think I was wrong. I think I said his first fight was the fight of the century when he came back. That's not true. That was his third fight back. Oh, okay. 
the first place that let him box again was in Atlanta because Atlanta is cool sometimes and the black political establishment was strong there. So they basically reinstate. They were the first people to reinstate his license because they were like, whatever, like he's Muhammad Ali. Why are we preventing him from boxing? He can fight here. Right. Okay. And so he fights and he wins. And then I believe I've read both that the, the Supreme court thing that happens in a moment is why. And I've also read that it was a lawsuit in New York. Either way, something happens in a New York. He's allowed to box there again. He faces another guy. He wins. And now he's ready to fight for his championship to get it back. He is ready for the second fight of the century. Much like the battle of the too many people with J name 60 years earlier, this one was also presented as a battle between the forces of whiteness and good and America and apple pie on one side and the evil black man who wants to murder all the white people on the other side. The catch this time, I, th- I think I've alluded to already, Joe Frazier, the heavyweight champion, is also black. So it's a little fucked up. Yeah. And Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali's relationship isn't as simple as anyone seems to say. There's a version where Frazier and Ali were friends for a while after all, um, before all of this. Frazier gave Ali money while he was out of work and helped him get his boxing license reinstated. But this wasn't necessarily altruism. People didn't really take Frazier seriously as the heavyweight champion because he'd never beat the last... Well, he beat the last... Actually, I don't remember if he was... Whatever. He hadn't beat Ali. So no one took Frazier seriously. It's like, I think he beat the guy that they gave the belt to when they took it off Ali or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And Frazier talked directly with President Nixon about getting Ali reinstated so that Frazier could beat him and show the world that the Muslim extremist wasn't as good as a patriot like Frazier. Or at least that is the way that it is phrased in some versions of this because everyone is a showman. Everyone is playing into this shit. You know, it's like kind of hard to parse out. So they talk shit on each other. Frazier kept dead naming Ali. Ali called Frazier a dumb tool of the white establishment and an Uncle Tom. Neither side appreciated this about what the other was doing. And it got painted by both Muhammad Ali and the media as a fight between black and white, even though it wasn't. And the whole thing is that Muhammad Ali is building up his reputation as the people's champion at this point. Right. The the fight of the century was in Madison Square Garden. Uh, We talked about it in our episode about the Catholic burglars and the FBI. On the night of the match, some pacifists broke into an FBI office and stole documents proving conclusively how the feds had been spying on everyone. But Ali, at least by his own telling of this, he he got cocky. He was like, of course I'm going to win. I'm Muhammad Ali. You know? He's never lost. It's a reasonable assumption for him to have made. Right. He loses. And this is his first defeat. But if you want to not get defeat, well, actually, let's do the, um, let's get sponsored by something nice. We got sponsored by Turtles, but is there anything, Ian, that you want to be sponsored by that's particularly like a nice, good thing? Yes, I've been thinking about this for a while. Um, you know when you like just wash your sheets and you make your bed all nice, that first that mm-hmm. first night's sleep in like a freshly laundered bed, it's like there's no better feeling in yeah. the world. We want to be sponsored by that. Hell yeah. Uh, we are sponsored by first night of sleep in freshly laundered sheets. Not, well, we might also be sponsored by specific mattresses or linen sheet sets, but... That's not our main sponsor. Our main sponsor is the first night of sleep in a freshly laundered bed. Oh, yeah. 
Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save 40% site-wide. Get 40% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. And we're back. So, in 1971, the Supreme Court overturned his conviction unanimously. Uh, he should not have been denied a conscientious objector status. It was absolutely part of his religion to not go fight in this war. And part of their evidence in favor of this was actually the autobiography of Malcolm X, which helped them understand that this was a, a sincere conviction and not cowardice on his part. I think the other argument against it being cowardice is it's Muhammad Ali. <laughs> like... Anything that man is afraid of, he does anyway. But, so he's back. He keeps fighting. He's actually back in the Nation of Islam. I didn't read, I didn't find about how his return after being kicked out for a while went. A lot of people, at least during this time period, seem to get kicked out and reaccepted back into the Nation of Islam. I think things are getting a little hectic in that organization at this point. So he kept fighting. 
1974, he gets a rematch with Joe Frazier. Um, but the problem is, is that Joe had lost his championship already to a guy who sells girls named George Foreman. And so in order to fight Foreman, he needs to fight Frazier. So in order to get his belt back, he needs to beat the person who beat him and then beat the guy who beat the person who beat him, um, which is an uphill battle. And he wins. He fucking rematches Joe Frazier and he fucking wins. Oh, um, can I, at this point, mm-hmm. are, are mm-hmm. what's their relationship like with Joe Frazier and Ali? Are they still kind of like on the opposite sides of this like white versus black, like kind of thing, or has that been kind of like swept aside at this point? I'm just curious. Nope. This is when it gets even worse. Uh, okay. I think that you, this is when I believe this is the point at which Muhammad Ali is carrying around a stuffed gorilla in his pocket uh, and saying okay. he's going to beat that ugly gorilla. Yes. Which I think even at the time people were like, yeah, that's racist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I can see why Joe Frazier would not like Muhammad Ali after some things that like that. Yeah. 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 Okay. And I don't know whether Joe, Fra- I think Joe Frazier actually accepted this apology in, in his, um, in Muhammad Ali's book, uh, the soul of a butterfly, which is one of his later autobiographies. He's like, I went too far. That was bad. I should not have done that. And he's fairly mm-hmm. like direct that he's like, okay. He was like, I was just doing my bit, but that is not an acceptable thing I should have done. Right, yeah, he took it too far. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, his second match with Joe Frazier, uh, I think is where he like really just starts pulling out all the stops on on his shit talk is the nicest possible way to say that, but it's not good. Um, but I actually don't know whether, I think a thing I forgot to mention with the the 1970 fight or 1971, 1970 fight, is that the first fight with Frazier is that Frazier is getting called the Great White Hope. Right. And, which, I didn't, I haven't read Frazier's side of all of this much. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder how he felt about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to suck. So, so he beats Joe Frazier this, this second time, right? And, well, he beats him the first Whatever. The second match between the two of them, Muhammad Ali wins. But he doesn't get the belt back because Joe Frazier doesn't have the belt. George Foreman has the belt. So he goes and he fights Foreman. And this fight is called the Rumble in the Jungle. And it's held in what was then Zaire and what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And everyone assumed Ali would lose. He was old. He was 32 years old. I don't know if you can imagine being 32 years old, but that sounds like really old. Um, oh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> and he he'd lost what would have been the best years of his career, his late 20s, to his objection to imperialism. He is and George Foreman is, is black also. Um the but Muhammad Ali is seen as the people's champion like worldwide, right? Um and so I don't believe that this fight was racialized in the same way, but he is like the local okay hero in Zaire and Muhammad Ali loves Zaire. He's like, holy shit, it's a fucking country run by black people. This fucking rules. And the crowd in Zaire love him and they chant Ali, kill him. And he doesn't actually want to kill George Foreman or at least he says he doesn't later. And there's literally no reason to believe that he actually wanted to kill George Foreman. George Foreman was considered unbeatable 
he has one of the hardest punches in the history of the sport. And he is younger and, and all this stuff. So Ali comes up with a new strategy called Rope-A-Dope. Mm, you ever heard of this? Yes, yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> Such a good name. So he goes in and he punches Foreman as hard as he can in the face to like get him mad. And then he just hangs on the ropes and he blocks and he lets the elastic take the pressure out of Foreman's blows and he just fucking tries to wear Foreman down. Literally, this is like the equivalent of like dodge rock, you know? It's like, right. I'm going to wear you down by you punching me. Yeah, until you're so tired that you can't even fight anymore, then I'll just knock you out. Oh, I love yeah. it. Yeah, and that's what he did. And the whole time he's on the ropes, he's just mocking his opponent and trying to make him mad and tiring him out. And slowly he starts to fight back harder. And round eight, he knocked George Foreman out. And literally a billion people watched it happen on television. Wow. That's awesome. I can't, I know. I think that's a quarter of the people who were alive in like. Yeah. Was it 1974? You said. Yeah. Like, I think the population of the world was like 4 million in the 90s. 4 billion in the 90s. Wow. I don't know. But yeah. So this is a, this is a big deal. Um, in a way that boxing actually isn't as much anymore. I mean, it's still a big deal, but it's like, I think that it's like looking back on boxing, it's it's not the sport that when I first think of sports, I think of basketball as like the thing that, Mm-mm. you know, or maybe football or something, but like. Yeah, I feel like the popularity of boxing like probably peaked in like the 90s, like with like Tyson yeah. and stuff. I feel like it hasn't been the same since then. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And Mike Tyson once in a road rage incident knocked someone unconscious like a mile away from my house where I grew up. Whoa. Um, Wild. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so he is now the heavyweight champion of the world again for the second time. Frazier wasn't done with him and they had a third match and this is called the Thrilla in Manila. Uh, it's possible this is when the gorilla stuff happened, but I'm not certain. I think it was the previous fight, the second fight. This is in 1975 and takes place in Manila, which is in the Philippines. And yeah, this fight was the hardest of Muhammad Ali's life. And it was probably the hardest of either of their lives. It's also probable that they did permanent damage to each other in this fight. Ooh, okay. In his, in his corner, Ali was like, so this is what dying feels like. But he won. And then, just to go back to his Nation of Islam stuff, and just to cover possibly the worst thing he ever did, in 1975, as a final act of black separatism, basically, he gave a talk to the KKK at a oh. KKK rally. Yeah. What, in, what was the context of this talk? <laughs> He went up to say, like, we all agree black men should marry their own women. Oh, no. Okay. Um, Because he was a spokesperson for the Nation of Islam. And the Nation of Islam at that point was coordinating with the KKK because they both wanted racial separation. Mm. Damn. Yeah. While he was there, there's no record that I found of the speech itself, but there's a, well, there's some quotes from it. Um, But there's, there's clips of him talking about him giving him the talk and he's just joking about it and he's laughing about it. And one of the things is that like while he's there, 
they joke about lynching him. They're like, get that N-word. And then he turns around. They're like, ah, we're just kidding. We're not actually going to murder you. And he's like laughing at their funny joke. Wow, that's terrible. Yeah, that's the worst thing that I found. I mean, I also don't entirely, whatever. But then Elijah Muhammad died. And the nation of Islam converted to Sunni Islam. And with it, Muhammad Ali converted to Sunni Islam. No more pro-segregation. No more hanging out with the KKK. uh, Still anti-white supremacy. Still pro-black power. But that's fucking good. I'm real glad for that change. Yeah. And and he's getting old. He's still a, a boxer. Um, but Frazier had really fucked him up and he kept, he keeps winning for a while, but the fights are getting closer and closer and he loses the title to an upstart named Leon Spinks in 1978. He rematched and then he won again and he becomes the first heavyweight to win the belt three times. I'd always like, I never quite thought about it when I was a kid being like, oh, heavyweight champion three times over or whatever. You're like, oh yeah, like won three championships, like three tournaments or whatever. Like, not realizing it was like, no, he lost it and then won it again, you know? Yeah. He tried retiring, but he kept coming back. Uh, And then he started losing. And he kind of, like, later, he was like, I wanted to be the first one to retire while I'm still on top. But then he's like, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have retired until I started losing. There was no way I would have, you know? Yeah. He fought his last professional match in 1981. He lost that. He lost a couple... Prior to that. And around this time, he got diagnosed with Parkinson's, almost certainly caused by the damage he'd sustained in the ring. But to quote a musician I've never heard of named Kinky Friedman, because this quote is often misattributed to Charles Bukowski, I just like this quote. Our goal in life is to find what you love and let it kill you. Hmm. So, you know, and he talks about that himself. He's like, he's like, I ain't got no regrets, even though it did this to me, you know? Yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't have had it any other way, you know? Yeah. He was doing what he loved, yeah. Yeah. So, Ollie and Frazier talk shit on each other on and off for the rest of their lives. I've read sources claiming it became kind of a friendly banter and that, like, they accept, like, that Frazier accepted Ollie's apology and stuff like that. And others have said it was a blood feud to the death, but I... I'm on side they probably started getting along because I feel like the, like, it was a blood feud is, like, sell newspapers. That feels extreme. Yeah. 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 And I'm going to a little bit speed run the rest of his life and it's like kind of sucks in some ways because actually he does a lot of his most amazing shit in this period. After he retires. Yeah. After he retires, once he's converted to to, uh, Sunni Islam, he starts taking faith really seriously. And if you listen to conservatives, uh, one of those conservatives whose name I can't even remember, one of those is like Chowder, Crowder or some shit has this whole thing about like, oh, he became a conservative and that's why he became good, but he used to be a racist and like, it's just like fucking like anti-white what? racist or whatever. Yeah, no. Okay. So, so conservatives try to claim Muhammad Ali. Oh, I don't like that. I'm bringing it up because I, because it's not true. And I want to talk about how it's not true. There are specific things that they use as their evidence that he became conservative and like, and some of those things are technically true, but they, they aren't. It needs the context. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he's focused primarily on the issues of blackness and religion, right? In 1980, he backs President Jimmy Carter because he believes Carter is suitably religious to be president. In 1984, he starts off backing Reverend Jesse James in the Democratic primary, but when Jesse James loses, he starts backing Ronald Reagan. Mm. And he backs Ronald Reagan because basically his quote at the time was, he wants to keep God in schools and that's enough. Later, he admits he was wrong to back Reagan, that he'd been listening to bad advice. And so basically, yeah, he'd been listening to bad advice. It didn't work anyway, even though he's like, it's kind of almost cool how it didn't work. He's like one of the most famous people in the country. And here he is being like, as a black man, I'm voting for Reagan. And like black voters didn't vote for fucking Reagan. They were like, no, we're we're good. (laughs) Yeah. We're not doing that. Yeah. An even lower percentage of them voted for Reagan in 1984 than did in 1980. And it was not high either time. I think it's like 14% and then 9%, you know? Mm -hmm. And a lot of black voters are like, oh, it's the Parkinson's. He's losing his mind. Oh, man. Which is like kind of fucked up. But like, you know. But yeah, he continues to change as a person and develop, um, but not into conservative. Like his last books are still just like, man, you know what rules is reparations. And you know what I'm not sorry about? How the nation of Islam tried to make black people's lives better. Like, wouldn't it be great if all the rich people had to give up all their stuff and give it to poor black people? Like, he's not a fucking... Like, there are elements, right? Like, you know, there's like the cultural conservatism of like um, not wanting women to dress a certain way and stuff like that. I actually don't know how that did or didn't change over his life. I'm not sure. One of his quotes that he wrote later... The man who views the world at 50, the same as he did when he was 20, has wasted 30 years of his life. Mm. And one of his daughters becomes a professional boxer. And for a while, Ali was upset about this because he didn't believe women should box. And then he came around and was like proud of her and was like, good dad, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And Layla was like very successful in her career as well. Cool. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. He like in his thing, he's like, oh, I told her it was my talent, but then that she inherited and then I was and but in the same thing he's like but then I was like no it's your hard work it's it's your hard work it talent is only some tiny percentage of this it's how hard you right. fought for it he really like like honestly the soul of the butterfly is a it's a really good book it's like very religious and very like just full of like him talking about how he tries to do good and all of the different things it's it's really interesting i actually i really recommend it yeah, no, I'll definitely have to check that out. In 1990, he flew to Baghdad to try and find a path to peace between the U.S. and Iraq. He met with Saddam Hussein and spent 10 days negotiating, basically speaking about how we need Muslim unity. Um, he didn't stop a war, but he did secure the release of 15 hostages. Wow, that's awesome. I know. And he didn't even like, people say that he was trying to be this like clever statesman, this like hardened diplomat who's going to go and engage in like political fisticuffs you know and like but he's actually just too earnest and too caring for like the political realm so he just goes where someone where an earnest good person can say earnest good things and get earnest good things done um (laughs) and in his later life he's just this hardworking i want everyone to be happy guy he leveraged his fame for good every chance he got He wrote, quote, at night when I go to bed, I ask myself, if I don't wake up tomorrow, would I be proud of how I live today? With that question in mind, I've tried to do as many good deeds as I can. 
Whether it is standing up for my faith, signing an autograph, or simply shaking a person's hand, I'm just trying to make people happy and get into heaven. His children mentioned that his his true faith, even more than Islam, was the faith of the heart, that all religions are trying to get to this. His quote is, rivers, lakes, ponds, streams, oceans, all have different names, but they all contain water. So do religions have different names, but they all contain truth expressed in different ways, forms, and times. If you love God, you can't love only some of his children. Mm. And, and he brought homeless families into his house constantly. He was like, con- if, you ask, if you ask Muhammad Ali for money on the street, he's going to give you money. And then he's going to talk about how you probably were God. <laughs> you know, like you <laughs> yeah. were like um, the like test of the faith, you know? Right, right. The only evidence I have of him around anything that has to do with any homosexuality is that he knew a lesbian couple and commented on how they seemed happy. So fuck yeah. He supported the Special Olympics, like very actively supported it, including actually during his boxing career, not just in his like later do-gooder life. Um, I'm going to say humanitarian life instead. Um, he took great pride in 1979 in getting to have, he felt honored that he got to participate in the lighting of the flame of hope for the Special Olympics, 1979. When he died on June 3rd, 2016, at the age, at the age of 74, he insisted that his funeral be interfaith, but also be in accordance to Islamic rites, as befitted his like, I am Muslim, that is not the only way. Um, mm. And I'm going to end with a piece of his called How I Would Like to Be Remembered. I would like to be remembered as a man who won the heavyweight title three times, who was humorous, who treated everyone right, as a man who never looked down on those who looked up to him, who helped as many people as he could, as a man who stood up for his beliefs no matter what, as a man who tried to unite all humankind through faith and love. And if that's too much, then I guess I'd settle for being remembered only as a great boxer who became a a leader and champion of his people. And I wouldn't even mind if folks forgot how pretty I was. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, he's a man. Yeah. 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 That was I really I thank you for for putting me up to to learning more about him. Yeah, Fucking no, thank cool. you for doing the research and then sharing it with me. So yeah. um I just think it's so amazing and it was just so courageous that at a time where he had everything to lose and you know, you could say that he did lose a lot of it. Yeah. He was you know, firm in his beliefs and stood by his guns. Cause it could, it, it could have been so easy for him, not only with Vietnam, but just with all of his activism, just to, you know, keep it to himself or not say anything or not make waves or, you know, you know, stay out of the limelight. And I think to be honest, it's probably some, probably part of the reason why he had that contentious relationship with Joe Frazier, but he decided to stand up for what he thought was right. And he inspired so many people because of it like for example Kareem Abdul-Jabbar I believe you know uh, Muhammad Ali was a big inspiration for him and his activism Mm -hmm. so you know the impact that he's had outside of boxing which is the thing that he's you know most known for is still so wide-reaching and I just think it's amazing he had an amazing life yeah yeah and it's like in some ways it's like wow he put everything on the line he could have lost everything and then the thing that's really interesting is he did lose everything right exactly he did lose a lot and then he got it back mm-hmm. he was like well i fought my way up to this before if i'm knocked down to nothing i can do it again 
And right. then he did. So badass. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking cool. All right. Well, um, you got anything you want to plug? I would say just being kind to others. You never know what somebody's going through. It's free to not be an asshole. Just try it out. Yeah. That's a good one. I'm going to plug myself because I'm a jerk. I'm going to plug that I have another podcast called Live Like the World is Dying that comes out every Friday. I'm one of the hosts on that. It's all your individual and community preparedness needs. And we love a we love a prepper pod. Yeah. I know. I'd like I want a parachute for one. No, that's actually probably just an anxiety <laughs> thing. Um, <laughs> and you can follow me on the internet if you look for me as Margaret Kiljoy. I am currently the only Margaret Kiljoy in the world. Although that said, Margaret at Margaret Kiljoy on Twitter is taken by someone who hasn't posted in many, many years. And it's not me. Fucked up. I know. I know. Well, what it was was that this band, My Chemical Romance, had all their fans name themselves Killjoy for a while, like 10 years ago. Um, okay. And One so, of those. Yeah. And so I was like, why are all of these like teenagers from other countries suddenly following me on Twitter? And the answer was that they were just like looking for all the other Killjoys and following them. Hey, well, I hope they like podcasts. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, that's it. And you can hear more cool people did cool stuff next Monday. Fuck yeah. Bye. Bye. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Check out Unpacking Israeli History Podcast. From the history of infamous terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah to the story of Nakba to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. You can rent a car, a house, even that little black party dress. So why not rent the stuff you need for your home, too? The place to do it is errands. Choose from thousands of new products from the brands you love, online or in store. Pick a payment plan that fits your budget and pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But if life changes, you can return it anytime or even upgrade it with something new. Rent what you need. It's better at errands. Approval not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. See store for details.